this series, Watch the Throne, has ultimately been a series on Daniel about contrast. Every week, we've looked basically at two different kings. The second half of the book, we'll look at uh, different kingdoms, and we'll be contrasting them. And uh, the question this morning is one of glory. Uh, Our title uh, is Our Glorious King. That's what we're going to look at. But We're going to do it in the context or in the comparison or contrasting with this king, King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, that name probably doesn't carry much to uh, carry much weight to us today, uh, but his role at the time of his life is significant. Uh, The empire of Babylon was uh, large and undefeated uh, and, and very strong, and the capital city Babylon itself, uh, contained one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which was literally an anniversary gift. Okay? One of the seven wonders of the world was an anniversary gift that King Nebuchadnezzar built for his wife because she missed her homeland. So he literally built a mountain in the middle of his city covered in tropical plants uh, so that she would feel at home. Uh, the city of Babylon had walls that were eight stories high and wide enough to drive chariots on top of. The hanging gardens were so tall that they could be seen from outside the city. Okay? It's hard to wrap our head around this because it was so completely wiped off the map in history. Um, but his, he really was kind of the center of the Western world and his accomplishments Uh, were kind of benchmarks in human history. Babylon was one of the first great cities. Uh, You know, we always point to Rome being kind of the beginning of internal plumbing, but aqueducts, I mean, this mountain garden is really where, uh, where agriculture gets urbanized, okay? He's significant. And so ultimately, the question is one of glory this morning, and before we read our passage, it's worth asking exactly what we're talking about. You see, generally, if we think of this idea of a glorious king, I think we all probably get the same picture. You know, there's, uh, there's exoticness, there's precious stones, there's impressive amount of people, and, uh, you know, there's prestige and all these things. Uh, but really, that's just, that's just the trappings. That's just the trappings of glory. What glory is really about is significance, In fact, the word in the Bible in the Old Testament that's used for glory means weighty. What is it that's most central, most important? What is the greatest? What is the most significant? What has the most gravity? That's what we're talking about when we talk about glory. And the thing is, uh, every single human being is oriented towards glory. Not necessarily towards glorifying themselves, although we are, uh, but we look for gravity. We gravitate towards what we feel is most uh, most significant. Think of how often we look at history and we try and ask that question. What's most important here? What is it that turns the wheels of human history? What do we blame the progress on, the highs and the lows? What really matters here? And we do the same thing in our own lives. What is it that is so weighty that it shapes your life, that it determines your destiny, that, uh, that your future is um, formed by this thing? That is ultimately what we're talking about in glory. Okay? When celebrity, uh, celebrity rappers or sports stars talk about the greatest, they're talking about glory. When politicians like Nebuchadnezzar talk about their own power, significance, importance, they're talking about glory. Okay? Now, the other thing you need to understand about chapter 4 as we get into it is it's somewhat unique in the book of Daniel because it is a uh, document that's been grafted into the book. It's not written by our usual author, but it's been pasted into the book. And as we'll see, the author is Nebuchadnezzar himself. Okay? This is a, uh, a writing that Nebuchadnezzar publishes that our author has grafted in here. And effectively, as we'll see, it's a personal story. It's a testimony. 
But it comes down to this issue of glory. It comes down to this issue of what's most important, of who's most important. So let's look at uh, chapter 4, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. This seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs! How mighty are his wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Let's pray. God, when we look at this Nebuchadnezzar and we contrast it with the Nebuchadnezzar of the last three chapters, we see a huge shift. We see a transformation. Uh, we, sh we see a reoriented uh, reality of glory. And as we do so, as we look at this text this morning of how this man moved from being the center of his own universe to not, I ask, Lord, that you would reorient our universe as well. I pray, Lord, that you would show us where we place our glory this morning and that we would also see the God who is most glorious. I pray that your spirit would teach us through your word. In the name of Jesus, amen. It cannot be overstated how significant the opening verses of this chapter are. Here is Nebuchadnezzar, a Babylonian, a cruel conqueror of nations, writing out a proclamation to all the people under his rule to speak of this foreign god that he's just encountered, the most high god. Now, if you go back in the story of Daniel, he's encountered this god in many ways, but this is really a step forward. So in Daniel chapter 1, he's shocked that the god of Daniel is the revealer of dreams and visions and the hidden things. In chapter 2, he encounters, uh, you know, the, the reality that this God is over history. In 3, as he tries to uh, throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, he sends out a proclamation that no one's to badmouth the God of Israel. But here is a shift entirely, okay? As we'll see here, he comes to understand that this high God, this most high God, rules sovereignly over the earth, and that includes rules sovereignly over Nebuchadnezzar. We know from history the self-significance that Nebuchadnezzar had. All of the bricks we have of Babylon, which is all we have left is bricks, uh, they have his inscription on it, built by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Okay. On everything he built, he put his name. He wanted to be remembered. He saw himself as significant. As we'll see, he saw himself as the king of the earth, the center, the most important. And so here, he wants to tell the story of God's signs and wonders. And as we'll see, those signs and wonders come down to greatness. Now notice here in verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. This is relatively later than the story we read last week in chapter 3, maybe as much as 20 or 25 years, okay? And so he's in, uh, he's in the glory days of his kingdom. There's no more fighting. It's peace. It's prosperity. Babylon, this great wonder of the world, has been built and he has nothing to do but kick back and enjoy it. This is where the story takes place. Verse 5, I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in the bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. Okay, so actually this sounds very familiar. It sounds a lot like chapter 2. We'll see uh, the difference here is that in the first one, he is so distraught about the dream that he won't even tell his wise men what the dream is. He needs to know that they know what they're talking about. And so he says, tell me the dream and the interpretation. 
And that's what sets Daniel apart, is that he's able, he, through God's uh, provision, Daniel learns both the dream and its meaning and brings it before the king. Here, uh, that's not the issue on the table, and still the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers could not make known to Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation. Now, I want you to notice that as we read this dream this morning, that is probably not because they don't know what it means, okay? The meaning of the dream is pretty evident. The danger of clarifying that dream to Nebuchadnezzar is the thing that causes restraint, okay? And so notice, notice here, so verse 8, at last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream saying, okay. So as we read through this dream, see if you can guess what it means. O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The vision of my head uh, as I lay in my bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The trees grew and became, or the, excuse me, the tree grew and became strong. Its top reached to heaven. It was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heaven lived under its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the vision of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and let the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Now notice the change here. We've been talking about a tree, and then halfway through verse 5, it clarifies that we're actually talking about a person. So there, sorry, in verse 15. So it says here, Leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of honor, iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills and sets it over the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Okay, and so here we have the dream. He dreams of a tree that is stretched all the way into heaven, and its branches and its leaves provide shade and shelter for everything on earth, its fruit feeds the nations, and all is good. And then there's a proclamation, and the tree is cut down. And then we see as these bands are wrapped around the stump, and then it shifts in its perspective and basically says, take him and drive him into the woods to eat grass like a beast. Take away the reason of his mind and make him like an animal for seven periods of time. And it says, this is why this is going to happen. In fact, read that again. Why is this decreed? Verse 17, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. Okay, and so this dream is for Nebuchadnezzar, but the proclamation of the dream is for everybody so that all would know that God is the most high king and he puts over the earth whoever he wills. And then it adds even the lowly. This is clearly the most important sentence in the chapter. Why do I say that? Because as we'll see, it's repeated word for word three times. Okay? This is what Nebuchadnezzar wants to communicate. This is what he gets out of the whole story that he's telling here. And so let's just read it again um, uh, 
to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Okay, we'll see that repeated over and over again. This is effectively about glory. It's effectively about who's in charge. It's effectively about who's most significant. Now, we're going to look at this from a couple of different levels. We're going to look at what this proclamation means for Nebuchadnezzar, who is obsessed with his own glory. We're going to look at what it means for Daniel, who is in the service of this king. And we're also going to look at what it means for the readers of the book of Daniel. Because remember, when Daniel was written, it has a broader purpose in mind. Who is it speaking to? It's speaking to Israel that lives under the thumb of Babylon and the kingdom that follows it, Persia, and the kingdom that follows that one, Greece. Okay. The question that Israel is asking is, what is God doing in this time? Is God still in control? And so we have to look at it through all of those levels this morning. But let's get a few more facts on the table. So verse 19, Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Belshazzar said, answered and said, my lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Now he's going to go on and explain the dream, and effectively he's going to say, you're the tree. You're the tree. You're the one who's under the proclamation to be cut down, to lose your sanity, and to be driven out. But as we'll see, the way he handles it, he doesn't do much interpretation. He doesn't have to. Okay. Imagine what it's like to work for King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, who last time he had a dream, basically said, if you get this wrong, you all die. Okay? Nebuchadnezzar, who when three Jewish boys refused to bow down and worship his image that he's made, he wants to just put them instantly to death. Okay? What would it be like to work for this almighty Nebuchadnezzar and he has this dream, and the clear meaning of the dream is, it's over for you, king. Finally, you're getting what you deserve. Okay, see here, what keeps the others from interpreting the dream is that they don't want to be the bearer of bad news. They know that Nebuchadnezzar is totally capable of shooting the messenger. Daniel responds, and actually at first it looks like he responds in the same way. Did you notice what it said about him? He hears this dream and he's alarmed. He's so shocked he doesn't say anything and the king has to coax it out of him. And so we could read that as if Daniel goes, oh man, this is serious. I don't really want to talk about it. But if you've been studying with us before, if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, that doesn't sound like Daniel. In fact, we find out where his real concern is uh, when he opens his mouth. He says, may the Lord, or my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. He's not alarmed for his sake. He's never been alarmed for his sake. Remember the other men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were under his care. Nebuchadnezzar, our God is totally capable of delivering us, but even if he does not, we will not bow down and worship. Okay? He's not afraid for his own life. He's afraid for the life of Nebuchadnezzar. At this point, Daniel has been uh, in relationship and serving this king for decades. But never forget how he got there. Right? Daniel's people were destroyed. His hometown was devastated. He and his friends were kidnapped and taken away from their families and put in the employ of a king. And throughout all of this is woven intense violence and cruelty. He doesn't like Nebuchadnezzar because he's a great guy. But he clearly loves Nebuchadnezzar. He has concern for Nebuchadnezzar. He's been faithfully serving him all these years and he hears this dream and he responds and he says, I don't want this to happen to you. Now we're going to see that's not all he says. He's going to finish his interpretation by calling Nebuchadnezzar to repent. So it's not just, it's not just something he says to take the heat off. I wish this was true of your enemies. He's going to say, actually, though, it's true of you, and you've got to do something about it. He's going to give him confrontational counsel, okay? But what I want you to notice here 
is that this requires Daniel sees that God Most High is the one who puts rulers in place. For Daniel to respond in the way that he responds, he has to already believe what we just read, that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. This is why Daniel is able to serve a pagan king. This is why Daniel is able to serve in a terrible government. Because he knows that that government is not ultimate. And that it doesn't happen outside the purview of God's sovereignty, of God's plan. You see, for us, sometimes things get so bad in our life, or so bad politically, that we ask, where is God? If anyone had the opportunity to wonder those questions, it's Daniel. Daniel, who has a list of dead in his immediate family because of the king that he has now been enslaved to. Daniel, who has close encounters daily with cruel and angry Nebuchadnezzar. But he understands this principle that God is the one who determines who has the throne. The most significant determinant factor in human history is the power and plan of God. And the first thing that we see that that allows him to do is to actually love and serve those in power. I think, honestly, that's pretty profound. And I think in our day and age, it's relatively rare. But the truth is, if God is still on the throne, then we can operate with hope. Okay? It takes the scenario from being one of opportunity to one of despair. Right? It's, it's one or the other. Either the most significant thing in your life right now are the things you can't control, or more significant than that is the one who controls all things. You see the difference between those two things? And so that puts Daniel in a really unique place. On one half, it gives him the possibility to be a faithful servant of a wicked government. But on the other hand, as we'll see, it also gives him the possibility to stand against and confront that self-same government. You see, we're not very good at both and. And generally... The reason we're not good at both and when it comes to the things we can't control is because of glory. Either, either everything is going to be all right because this is most significant or because I'm capable of changing things so I am most significant or we despair of any possibility because the scales are tipped against us. God's sovereignty doesn't breed despair. It doesn't breed, uh, you know, determinism where it's like, well, it doesn't really matter what I do. It cultivates the opportunity for faith, for trust, for moving forward, for faithful service, for love, and even confrontation. And so he says this, and then he gives the interpretation. But once again, notice, he doesn't have to explain very much. He just affirms The validity of the dream, verse 20. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found for shade, and whose branches the birds of heaven lived. It is you, O king. That last line is the only interpretation he gives to the first half of the dream. He says, all that you saw, that's you, O king, who have grown and become strong, your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Then he goes on to the second half. Because, verse 23, the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It's a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know 
that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. And so what does he say here? He says, the interpretation is that this is going to happen to you. That's it. That's all the explanation is necessary. But once again, he reiterates that repeated refrain in the chapter with one change. Okay? Earlier it was so that all know. Here, the specific is so that you, Nebuchadnezzar, know that the Most High rules the earth and gives that to whoever he will. So verse 26 and it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know heaven rules. In other words, this is the only part of the, the dream that's a little bit hard to interpret on a first read is why is this stump wrapped in bands of iron and bronze? Okay? When we look at agricultural principles, that doesn't really make any sense. Okay? The idea here is clearly one of protection and preservation. In other words, the throne will be absent the kingdom will wait. This is temporary, and it's going to not be the end of Nebuchadnezzar's rule, but it will be an interruption in it. Side note from history, okay? We do have the story of a king named Nabonidus, and this is all we know about Nabonidus, is that he proclaims judgment on Babylon from the God Most High and then disappears for seven years, okay? Now, there's not enough evidence to show that Nabonidus is another name for Nebuchadnezzar, but it's surprisingly similar. Not only that, but for a king who put his name on every brick and recorded so much of his history, it is super shocking that there is literally seven years missing from the record. It's not confirmation of this, but the absence is surprising, and we have to recognize that in the ancient world, they proclaim the good things and hide the bad. Sound familiar? Okay. I don't want to be political, but think of the Polish government right now that has just made it illegal last year, just made it illegal to tie Polish people to Nazi war crimes. They don't want to be affiliated with it. And if you've been watching, Israel has been responding to that and just got mad at their own prime minister for the, his handling of this, because they basically say that just doesn't fit the facts. And let's be honest. Would you make a law like that if it didn't need to be made? <laughs> right? I mean, why would you have to say that if there wasn't something at risk? But the point is, this is who we are as human beings. We tell the story, think Facebook, that we want the world to see, and we hide the things we don't. And so what's significant then on the historical records we have is the missing information that fits this strange period of time, okay? But most importantly in the story here, notice here, this is what's coming on you, Nebuchadnezzar. This is what's been decreed, and then verse 27, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Recognize that this as well hinges on who's in control. Because he's able to stand before this king and say, you're about to lose your mind by the decree of God, O king, so knock it off. Repent of evil. Turn away from your wickedness or else. Okay. Every great prophet of the Old Testament stands before kings and powers and calls for repentance because of one reason. Because they believe that somebody is more powerful than the king they call to repent. I tell this story all the time, but it's worthwhile to tell again. Uh, one of my preaching heroes was a man named Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer was part of the uh, British Reformation and eventually was put to death by royalty. But he was the court preacher. He was the one who preached in the king's church. And on one occasion, he came and he preached fervently a message. And on Monday, a messenger came and said, Mr. Latimer, the king wants you to understand that you were a little too bold yesterday and that you better remember your place and that you're in service of the king. And so Hugh came back the next Sunday. And before he started, he started with this preamble. He said, be careful, Hugh. Be careful because today you stand before the man who determines whether you live or die. And then he said, but be careful, Hugh. 
because you also stand before the one who determines your entire eternity. And then he preached the same sermon, sermon from last week more fervently. How was he able to do that? He was able to do that because he knew there was one greater in control. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego last week. There is one who's able to deliver us from you, O king. And he will deliver us, whether from death or through death. Paul says the same thing in 2 Timothy as he stands before Nero. Nero, who will in days probably from the writing of 2 Timothy behead him. He says, the Lord is able to deliver me. He delivered me from the lion's mouth last time, and he will deliver me this time. Service and boldness. Love and confrontation stem from the same place, from the place of glory, from the place of what's most significant, of what carries the most weight, of what's going to determine the meaning and value of your own story. But we also here need to look at Nebuchadnezzar. Clearly, God is trying to get his attention. Clearly, he's trying to teach him a lesson. As we saw here, God wants him to know that he has the glory. So I want you to notice here what happens when you're the weightiest thing in your life. What is he called to break off? Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. Okay? Effectively, when we take the glory on ourselves, we call that pride. Pride does two things we see here. One is pride means you make your own rules. And we do this in a lot of ways. Pride means I am the master of my own d domain. I determine what is right in my own eyes. I make my own rules. I set my own compass. Okay? But it also says, I am so significant, or I am so important, or even I have some sort of special sovereign past from the living God, I'm so great or so important that these rules don't matter as much to me. Right? I deserve whatever this is. It's pride. Pride is not a sin. In a lot of ways, it's the root sin. It's the center. It's the temptation that the serpent gives Adam and Eve in the garden. You too can be like God. You too can be self-determining. You too can set the standards. God doesn't have your best interest in mind with his rules. Make your own rules. Know the difference between good and evil. Determine it for yourself. And then the other thing it does is it leads to oppression. Because if you are great, there must be some that are less. And that was the case with Nebuchadnezzar. Apparently, he was living out an oppressive reign because what was most important was his will and his power and his glory. And the truth is, when we mistreat others because they're not good enough, we do it because we are the greatest. We do it because we're the most weighty. You cannot be humble and oppressive. And don't forget, church, that this is also true, not just of those with accomplishment and power, it's also true of those who are self-righteous, who oppress the wicked because they deserve it. That was the problem in Jesus' day with the Pharisees, that they constantly took advantage of those who were undeserving and justified it because they were the chosen ones. They were the true righteous. They were the good. If you want to know if you are the center of your own universe, look at what happens in your life. Everybody thinks that they're not proud. I don't think we understand how capable we are. I mean, we look at Nebuchadnezzar and we go, well... Obviously, this is a problem here. He's in, he's in an easy time of life. He's at the top of the food chain. He has all of these accomplishments, some of which we still talk about today. But, you know, my life's not that big of a deal. The, the, thing, about, the thing about pride is that it's madness. 
It's madness for Nebuchadnezzar, as we'll see in just a minute, but it's also madness for us. And I like the way that G.K. Chesterton talks about madness. And he's specifically illustrating from, uh, from the asylum. He's talking about actual certifiable lunacy. And what he says is what we always get wrong about lunatics is that that's a shrinking of reality, not a growing of it. Okay? And so the circle that the madman lives in is relatively small. The conspiracy theorist, his way explains everything of his little tiny world, but it doesn't talk about anything else, right? We are capable of settling for being master of very little and seeing that as being of ultimate significance. In one of the follow-ups to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there's a character named Zaphod whose literal life is just pride played out. That's who he is. He really believes he is the center of the universe. But he gets captured by an enemy power, and they've cultivated this machine to drive human beings mad. And so they're like, okay, this is what we're going to do to Zaphod. We're going to torture him. And so he gets in the machine, and he sees the entirety of the universe to scale, all of it. He feels it. He feels it. And there's a little tiny arrow in the middle that says, you are here. You get the idea here? The whole idea of this machine is to say, this is your insignificance. Of eight billion people, you are only one on a planet of billions across a universe that you don't understand and have not seen. And Zaphod walks out of the building, or out of the machine, not only fine, but whistling. And they go, wait, what? You should, you should not even be able to stand. And he goes, are you kidding me? The whole universe and the only thing that makes it on the map is me. Zaphod is us. That's who we are. We boast in the smallest of accomplishments because we are capable of building a closed system that is so small. We're just like the king here. Let's keep reading. So this is the warning. It's laid out. Turn around. Repent. Stop seeing yourself as the center. Verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Okay. There are plenty of places in the Bible that you should read aloud and make your prayer. Don't make this one your prayer. But at the same time, can we understand where this sentiment comes from? I really wish, I wish we had a time machine and we could go and see Babylon. I tell you that as 21st century human beings who have seen places like Seattle and New York, we would be impressed. And he looks at it and he goes, I've done a pretty good job. I'm all right. But ultimately, I want you to notice that it touches on three areas. The traditional ending to the Lord's Prayer, the one that Jesus teaches us to pray, is what? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Ultimately, what, what Nebuchadnezzar says here is, mine is the kingdom. Mine is the power. Mine is the glory. Read it again. Hear what he says. He says, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. He says it's from him and through him and for him, amen. My kingdom, my power, my glory. Now, a second later, look at what happens. While these words, verse 31, were still in his mouth, there a voice fell from the, uh, heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You'll be made to eat grass like an ox. Seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Okay. And so instantly he loses everything, including his sanity. But I want you to recognize this morning 
that that's a suitable punishment because he's already lost his mind. Taking the glory for yourself is not just wrong. It doesn't just make God mad because he wants the glory. It's insane. That's the part that we don't get about pride. Here he looks at this, and we in the book of Daniel have seen behind the curtain, why has Nebuchadnezzar been so successful? By God's decree. God has given Israel and all these other people over to Nebuchadnezzar. Okay. The thing is, so much of your life and what determines where you get has nothing to do with your own ability or choosing. We like to think of ourselves as the master of our own life, but how easy is it like Nebuchadnezzar to lose everything? You go, okay, I come from a poor family. I'm going to do better for myself. I'm going to be financially secure. How many people believed that and accomplished that up to 2008 and the floor falls out? And they have nothing. All of that work for nothing. How many times have people done everything right according to the book and then some unforeseen circumstance shifts the game entirely? How many times have you personally had the rug pulled out from under you when you thought this time everything's going to be okay? And it's not just the outside circumstances. It's not just the fact that you are not an authority. It's not just the fact that as you sit here, your house is in danger. It's not just the fact that you don't know if you will continue to breathe through the night. Although all these things are true, we are relatively fragile as human beings. And yet we think, okay, I will do this, and I will go here, and I will conquer this. James says, watch out for that. When you make the most basic of plans, I'm going to go to such and such a city and do such and such a business, never forget, he says, to add, if the Lord wills. Nebuchadnezzar says, I am the master of my own domain. I am the commander of my own destiny, and he is wrong. But he also says, I'm capable, and that makes me better than other people. I deserve this because I've worked harder. And the truth is, every ability he has is a gift. It's something that God has given him. In fact, Jesus tells a couple of parables that makes clear that every ability you have, you will be held accountable for. It doesn't come from nowhere. It was given with a reason. But still, more importantly, it was given. And so Paul just asks, how can you boast in that which you have received? And we're totally capable of that. We cross the finish line of the big race, and we puff out our chest, and we think, I am the fastest. Great. So you were made faster than other people. And then there's the glory. You see, because if we were the determinant, if we were responsible for the ability, then maybe we could take the credit. Ultimately here, this is about authority, it's about ability, and it's about applause. And glory always is. It doesn't just say, this is the most significant. When it says, I am the most significant, it says, it says it and then says, so you should applaud me. So you should celebrate me. So you should worship me. So you should give me everything that I'm due. That's what glory does. It says, I'm so significant, everyone should look at me. I have so much gravity, everyone's lives should rotate around me. He says, I've done this for me. Now the truth is, all of us are builders. We're doers. We're seeking to accomplish things. The question here comes down to motivation. What are you after? If you're trying to build an edifice to yourself, like Babylon, like Nebuchadnezzar, it will be left in the dust. See, that's one of the short-sightedness of this whole thing, is that glory by nature has to be permanent or it means nothing. An author can write the greatest sentence that was ever written, and if the page is burned before it's published, there's no glory. There's no significance. And the thing is, Nebuchadnezzar already knows that he's one in a line of empires, that Babylon won't reign eternally. 
that behind him is another kingdom and another kingdom until ultimately God raises up a king and his kingdom will be eternal. For us, trying to pursue our own glory is like building a sandcastle too close to the tide line. We're focused. We put all of our skill into it and the waves of time just wipe it all away. It's insane, insane to make yourself the center of the universe. And so what happens is God brings this judgment on him. He loses his mind. And how does he behave? Like an animal. He loses his rationality. That brain that, material, or, uh, that, brain that laid out this beautiful city. The mind that strategically fought the battles that put him in this place. The only reason he has it is because it's God-given. And what God gives, he can take away. And just like that, he's basically an animal. He's basically a beast. He loses his mind. He behaves like an animal. There's a point in the book of Ecclesiastes where it says that God intentionally does this all to all of us. He bursts our bubble. He changes our plans. And he reminds us that we're mortal so that we would know we are merely animals. The point is, without the possibility of a creator, without the reality of a God who's writing the story, without, without a sovereign sense to the universe, an author, what does it mean? What does it mean? And so even though we were created in God's image to serve for his glory on his purpose, when we pursue our own glory, we behave like animals. We forget the significance of our universe. We try and make meaning when no meaning can be made without the meaning maker. And so he goes through this. But it's not the end of the story. He goes out there and for seven years or seven seasons, however long it is, he lives out this life, eating the grass of the field, convinced he's merely an animal. His hair grows long and matted and ratty. His nails grow, it says, like eagle's claws. And then just as God declared, verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me. So after this period, he finally looks up to God. And even that is God-given. His ability to raise his eyes to the heaven is God-given. Enough reason to returns where he basically looks and longs and recognizes that there's something greater than him. His insanity comes to an end. This is where I wanted to read from Chesterton this morning. Um, he's talking specifically here about the man who believes that he is God. This is what he says. He says, this is what he would say to a man, madman who believes he's God. So you're the creator and the redeemer of the world, but what a small world it must be. What a little heaven you must inhabit with angels no bigger than butterflies. How sad it must be to be God and an inadequate God. Is there really no life fuller and no love more marvelous than yours? And is it really your small and painful pity that all flesh must, must put its faith? How much happier you would be how much more of you there would be if the hammer of a higher God could smash your small cosmos, scattering the stars like spangles and leave you in the open, free like other men to look up as well as down. You see, that was Nebuchadnezzar's problem. His viewpoint, he felt he was at the top. He could only look down. And as Chesterton puts it, his little cosmos here is shattered from the outside from somebody who wasn't on the radar, from someone who was above him. And here he begins to look up. And I love this because it shows us that this truly glorious one, the one who really holds all the cards, holds all the power, he uses it in a significant way, but it's a gracious way. I would love to tell you this morning that because God is capable of putting the powerful in their place, that he will always do it on the planes of human existence that this is the story that will play out for anyone who operates like Nebuchadnezzar. But we need to understand here that this is a merciful act. 
The truth is, Jesus says there will come a time where the books will be opened, where everything that was done in secret, even in the deepest recesses of your heart, will be shouted from the rooftop, and all will be known. There will come a time where perspective is actual, real, and true, and you will see yourself in the contrast with the glory of God. Where this candle that you fanned your whole life and said, this is the greatest light in the universe, will have to stand in the light of day and be seen for what it is. But it is gracious when God knocks over our house of card kingdom and shows us that in advance. Humility is such a gift from God that he is to be praised when he humiliates us, when he humbles us. God's purpose here, his heart as king of the universe, is not just to put Nebuchadnezzar in his place, it's to graciously invite him in to worshiping the one who really is God, the one who really is good, the one who really is glorious. And so notice the transition here. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, worthy in his own mind of all worship and praise, center of the universe, bends his knee to another and becomes a worshiper of the living God. And so his reason returned to him, and he blessed the Most High, and he praised and honors him who lives forever. Here he becomes an example of what happens when glory is in the right place. What does it look like? First, it looks like thanksgiving. Second, it looks like praise. We could add here it looks like obedience. Right? All of those things stem from the fact that this is the center of your life. It's the giver of all good things. It's the determinant of your fate. It's the one who has showed you mercy. The center is he who is worthy of praise. And so he praises him, notice here, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, unlike mine, he could add. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation, unlike mine. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, including me. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done, including me? At the same time, verse 36, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom and majesty and splendor returned to me. Notice that. He's installed back at the top of the food chain. It's just, it's no longer the top anymore. We have to be careful as Christians of thinking that we cannot appreciate authority or power or kingdom building or significance. We just have to align that in the greater reality of things. And so he's installed. In fact, his kingdom is increased. Look, it says, My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. What's the difference here? That greatness was added to me. He didn't build it. He didn't accomplish it. He didn't take more ground. He was given it. He's had a change of heart. And so he finishes here, and he says in verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he's able to humble. That brings us to the last audience here. Who needs to hear that? Nebuchadnezzar writes this to the whole known world, but Daniel grafts it into the book and gives it to his people. These ones who are under the thumb of Nebuchadnezzar, who are wondering if God is still going to fulfill his promises, they need to know that God is capable of humbling proud. Let me be really frank this morning without getting too specific. Do you believe it? Nothing shows the forgetfulness of the church like frantic freaking out. In the difficulties of your life, the big ones, the national ones, the local ones, the familial ones, the job place ones. Who's in control? Who's in charge? We can give God the glory up front. We can worship and praise him in the midst. We can stand like Daniel in humble confidence and both serve those and seek to bring those we serve to an understanding of who the true center of the universe is. All of this is the case. But here's what's most significant. 
the King of Kings that's being referred to here, the Lord of Lords, the, the Most High King of Heaven and Earth, the truly glorious one, what does he do with that glory? How does he use it? Is it really just another Nebuchadnezzar, just more powerful, who will rule with an iron rod, crush everything beneath its feet? Is he really just trying to put all of us in our place? Not according to Paul. Paul says in Philippians that even though, for Jesus, even though equality with God was not something, it was there, it was present, he, was, he had all the glory, he was the glorious one, sitting and ruling and reigning in heaven, even though that's who he was, he made himself of no reputation. He took on the form of a man and humbled himself to the point of service, and he served even to death on a cross. You see, the proclamation that the scriptures gives for the king of kings, the rock that would be hewn by no human hand and would crush all the kingdoms of this earth, it's kind of similar, actually. It's kind of similar to the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. Instead here, it wouldn't be a great tree that was cut down, but the servant who was cut off. In fact, he wouldn't be a great and powerful ruling tree at all. He would be a humble man of no reputation who would hang on a tree. In the Gospel of John, Jesus keeps talking about his coming glory, and it is radical when you realize that he's using that to point to his death. He says, this is the glory of God. That's why Paul says the world that we live in in 1 Corinthians, it doesn't understand the true wisdom of God, the true importance of God, or they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He says the cross is a stumbling block to some, it's foolishness to others, but to us, it is our wisdom and it is our life and it is our glory. Because the cross not only shows that God is sovereign because he takes the greatest act the human heart has ever committed against God himself and turns it into his will, accomplishes his plan, his victory, brings life where there's merely death. Not only does he do that, but he does that for us. You see, God is not just the thing worthy of worship in the, uh, in the universe and the only thing and the sole thing. He really is worthy of worship. He truly is good. His plan is gracious and best. The rules that he sets out are wise and loving. And all of this is demonstrated in the most likely place where the king of kings takes a crown of thorns and bleeds out on an instrument of torture for us. Nothing says God is in control like the cross. If he was working then, when all of hell and every human being was against him, how much more in the stuff you're facing now? In fact, just to finish, Paul asked this question in the book of Romans. He says, if God already gave us his son, why would he not give us all things? Let's pray. Father, we have to confess that we are all the characters in this story this morning. We are Nebuchadnezzar, who in pride stands against your rule and reign and says, I am more important. I am more significant. I am more worthy. We are Daniel, who faces the idolatry of others and needs to find that posture to serve both the kingdoms of this world and the king of kings faithfully. And we are Israel, who needs to remember that whatever things look like, however the power, whoever holds it, you are in control. No one has power that has not been given it to you by you. And you are capable of humbling the proud. God, there is only one center of the universe and it is the greatest and most glorious truth that it is you, that it is you, Jesus. Jesus who loved us and died for us. Jesus who took on humility and humbled himself for our sake. Jesus whose great kingdom is a kingdom of forgiveness and a kingdom of peace and a kingdom of justice. I pray that you'd take more ground in our hearts this morning. That we would surrender 
more ground to you as King of Kings, as Lord of Lords, that we would pray and live as if, as if the whole scream of our beings is thy will be done. You've invited us to help build with you something of significance. In fact, the New Testament says that you're going to share this glory with us. But as you do so, as we finally get the crowns our hearts so eagerly desire, we will throw them before your feet in worship because we'll finally understand the lesson of what it means to be creature and not creator. But I pray, Lord, that you take some of that ground now. I pray that we would pray in our hearts and express in our lives, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you've got kids in children's ministry, please go ahead, go ahead and get them now. Bring them back so they can worship with us. We're also going to respond by singing here. As I mentioned, one of the things that recognizes the glory of God is praising him. God says, this is who I am, and we respond in our singing by saying, this is who you are. Also, communion is here. For those of you who are Christians, please come forward and partake. And remember that this is our Pledge of Allegiance that this is how we ascribe to and connect ourselves with the King of Kings. This is his body that was broken for us that we partake of. This is the new covenant that was made, the promises that we've received in his shed blood. This is our standing, it's our foundation, it's our glory. So come and partake of that. If you're in need of prayer this morning, um, there are people sitting up front who are available for prayer who would love to pray for you. Um, let's just take some time now and respond.